This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Yo, and welcome to the 82nd episode of Lake of Rage, a Pokemon trading card game podcast. I'm your host, as always, Kevin Clementi, aka Mellow underscore Magikarp. I'm joined today by a very special temporary guest host. Joining us for the first time in... 60 episodes, so like well over a year. We have Ethan Heggy, aka Hegster. Ethan, how you doing? I'm good. Yeah, it's been a while. Wow. Yeah, a <laughs> lot has changed since uh Sass and the Pod. V Stars came out, a lot of different mechanics. Jeez, it's been a while, but I'm good. It's early here. I'm ready to get uh discussing some Pokemon stuff like always. It's gonna be a fun time. And for people who don't know, we're going to find out where here is exactly because we are recording this on complete opposite sides of the world, literally on an entirely different day from each other. Uh, but we're going to get to know what Ethan has been doing in the past year and a half. Or if you haven't listened to that episode, you should go back and listen. It was pretty good. But if you haven't listened to the episode, find out who he is. You should recognize the voice for sure. And then we're going to talk a little bit about Lugia V-Star, if it's as dominant as you expect, because Ethan has some hands-on experience. And then we're going to get some questions from Twitter, and then we're going to learn a little bit about the Japanese tournament structure, because Ethan, you live in Japan now. Yeah, I've been living in Japan now for about two months from the U.S. Uh, yeah, it's been awesome. I've been here for school, been uh, on the grind set studying, doing what I got to do. Uh, yeah, I've been working pretty much for the Pokemon Company as a commentator now for the last, sorry, been two years now, almost. We're getting there soon. A little, little under two years now at this point. You did the Players' Cup as well, right? Yeah, my first event was Players' Cup 3, and that was April of 2021. So yeah, we're probably about a year and a half now at this point, but uh, did in-person broadcast last year, got to commentate world championships, and uh, I'll be back for some events this year, hopefully be at Worlds again commentating, but you'll see me at some regionals and hopefully some international championships as well. Ooh, now we're talking a little bit of a potential leak there. I don't know if that's actually true or not. <laughs> Your official caster, you being in stuff. Yeah, makes I'll a lot be of back sense. in the yeah. States, so <laughs> I'll hopefully be doing some events while I come back there. That's the goal. I hope they bring you back. I've definitely been missing your casting for sure. You are uh, one of the stronger casters, I would say, in terms of play experience, and that is a very necessary skill set for sure. Yeah, it applies for sure. I think there's like built-in people who do casting for a bunch of different games. So for example, like Rosemary Kelly, who does stuff over on the VG side, mm -hmm. she works with a lot of different titles, Overwatch as well, to name just one of the few that she works with. So when you get that game experience too, it's definitely a big boost to, to having it as well. But yeah, I mean, I love it. I enjoy the game. So I hope that passion sort of comes through in the broadcast that I do. Oh, it does 100%. You can tell immediately. And I even think there was a situation after Worlds where you came after the game and it was a uh, pablo's game tablemon's game and you were so hyped on it and that's just something that you don't see from casters a lot it feels like that's just like emotion of like that game was so sick and that's something that you can really feel in the broadcast and one of the reasons that i love listening to when you get to cast yeah that was probably like one of the best games i think i've cast one of my favorite games that i've casted during worlds i don't think i'm gonna Forget that one for a while. That's definitely a uh, experience in itself. Yeah, uh, that's like one of the main things. Like I, talking to like some some of the older folks who have been casting for a while. Puka, even Sable House now has been casting for upwards of seven years now at this point on events. Mm -hmm. Like one of the big things that they're they're emphasizing is like we're we're getting old now. Like we need this kind of energy <laughs> to come through. Excuse me uh, on this. So that's kind of what I try to bring right because there should be a balance between energy and then also. You want to provide insight to the viewers and you also want to it's like that too because you also have to balance that and then you also have to balance what are the people who are clicking in for their first time on twitch so like what is their view on the game how do you keep things consistent for them so all stuff you got to balance it's all all goes into a broadcast it all goes into commentary oh yeah i imagine it's incredibly hard because there's people like myself who know the game very well and i will put headphones on while holding the baby and be like i want to know what's happening in this game 
And so it's like this entirely different thing from someone who is viewing for the first time or they clicked on the Pokemon channel because they're like, well, I like Pokemon. And they're like, oh, it's the trading card game. What's happening here? And so it's like this all this just massive, massive, massive difference. The fact that you all do such a good job. I'm a big fan of the casting. There was some criticism a little while ago. I am a huge fan of the way that Pokemon currently does the casting stuff. I'd I'd love to have you come back, though. (laughs) I would, too. I'd enjoy that as well. (laughs) But uh, we didn't bring you to talk about casting, though in the future, uh, maybe that is a topic we're going to bring up. We're going to talk a little bit about Pokemon in Japan, but I know people are curious because we have seen the results over in the West about what has been happening at these city leagues, and we'll learn what city leagues are. Is it fair to say they're about equivalent to a League Cup? Yeah, city leagues definitely are, for sure. Lugia keeps winning. Even though it's also important to note the like top four decks and stuff like that, there's a bunch of Regis. There's a bunch of Duraludon. These are the things that are supposed to counter Lugia. Is Lugia actually this good? You have firsthand experience. Yeah, it is. And there's a lot of reasons for it. Sort of like the Lugia checkbox of you kind of go down broad and then you start to get more specific as you work things down. So like looking at Lugia as a card, right? Lugia sets up essentially what is like the Pokemon. I more so look at Lugia as like Lugia itself is very strong, but it's more so Archeops that is like the main like okay, this card is like extremely good sort of in a sense because mm-hmm. what 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 Archeops does with the special energies that exist currently is it opens up so many possibilities for attackers outside of Lugia that then get into the problem too of okay, people are obviously going to understand we need to counter a deck. So then when you look at a deck, you have to understand, okay, in the process of countering a deck, how do you sort of go down a checklist? Because there is a natural checklist when you look at, okay, a deck is doing well, right? A deck is really successful. What is the checklist counters? Okay, so checklist number one, most of the time for counters is unless there is something like extremely like specific, like a deck functions on. So for example, with like Zoroark GX, bench size is essentially the, the name of the game is size of the game, right? So there was a card like Sudowoodo, right, with Roadblock that could come in and block stuff like that. So there's first-hand counters. That's always the first thing. Mm-hmm. But with Lugia, it can essentially function with three to two bench Pokemon and play if it really needs to. There's no card that turns off Primal Turbo besides something like Galarian Weezing, which has very niche usability and is also counterable to play around. So then that doesn't really seem like a great option at this point. So then you go to the second option, which is, okay, weakness, right? You usually want to play Pokemon, especially these multi-priced Pokemon that maybe get one hit knocked out by them. Mm-hmm. So, okay, we're like, okay, Lugia's weak to Lightning. We can play Lightning. Uh, but Dunsparce exists in the format, <laughs> and uh, that turns off weakness. And also, when you have to look at the pool of Lightning-type Pokemon, a lot of them, to take a one-hit knockout onto Lugia, uh, either need multiple turns to set up, mm-hmm. which Lugia is a very aggressive-style deck that can gust pretty aggressively, or they need combo pieces, which it's sometimes on paper makes sense and it works, but it can be unreliable to, to pull off. And then the third is to like try and like hard counter, like play specific t- Pokemon to like prize trade favorably in. But that's sort of where point number three comes in about like why Lugia is so good is the versatility of this deck compared to like anything we've seen before is on a whole different level. I remember when, when Mew VMAX came out, people were like, wow, this deck is so versatile because you could copy Latias as an attacker <laughs> if you want to, or use Meloetta or Ikorio to spread damage or Genesect or whatnot. But Bro, don't forget the Deoxys. Oh, of course. <laughs> I need to utilize that Deoxys to deal some solid damage too. But the versatility with this deck, because of the access to special energies in this format, you've got four Roar Energy, and then a lot of people don't remember, but there is essentially you can play four of every energy that exists because mm-hmm. a special energy has been released for every single basic energy type. Rip Fairy uh, that exists uh, in the game. So that's sort of the one thing is you can essentially play eight energy for a specific type attacker Pokemon. Uh, and when you have Pokemon like Raikou and Yveltal that in the past had pretty niche usages because of the ability to power them up to be so difficult, there's no card that before even Lost Origin powered that up in a, in a single turn. It just wasn't possible. You had to, like... I remember when people were trying to make, like, Amazing Rare Kyogre, <laughs> where you had to use, like, Frost Moth, and then you had to, like, Dynamotor on the on the Flaffy, and then Turbo Patch Heads. 
go through like ridiculous steps like that. Heck yeah. It's so simple because you can just primal turbo to everything. And that's not putting aside the fact that the reason Lugia is so strong is that into everything that is a V-Star Pokemon, it is favored. Because it one-shots V-Star Pokemon. Mm-hmm. And because Vigar Energy exists, which for our viewers who don't know about Vigar Energy, you will know it soon, as soon as you go to tournaments in this format, because <laughs> it's colorless energy, it does not stack, so that is an important thing I've seen people talking about, of like, oh, you just put four energy on a Lugia V-Star, and it doesn't stack, so it's a one-time usage on one Pokemon. You can have it on multiple Pokemon, but pretty much reduces damage by 30. So what this does is it brings Lugia up to 310. And if you look through the flowchart of what deals 310 in this format currently, there's not a lot. Not a lot that deals 310 right away. Especially when the same Pokemon that has 310 also is a two-price Pokemon that one-shots every V-Star in the format. Uh, And then on top of that, even if you don't one-shot for some reason with that Pokemon, you've got three to four other Pokemon you can play in your deck that also have the ability to one-shot and play pressure on. So yeah, uh, the deck is really strong. I think like my final point on Lugia is like counters do exist. There are cards that make it difficult for the deck to to function. Like there's definitely like you can path Marty them. You can do a lot of things that mm-hmm. are annoying. But the problem is because we are at essentially what is the end of a rotation. We've got. I I assume we're rotating around the second week of January because has it uh, not been announced in Japan either. So it has been announced in Japan. I believe it's Jan- January 13th is the date in Japan. Okay. Since we are switching to what appears on the surface to be worldwide rotation, mm-hmm. that I'd assume it to be the second week in January. If not, it will be like upon release in February when I assume that there still will be about a month difference between sets. Yeah. Unless they, I would, I'm not going to complain if the sets release simultaneously in, in America and Japan going forward. That was actually one of the questions we got about like that idea of. Mm, yeah. And there's the relevance, right, of like, it seems really obvious right now that rotation's going to go because Scoop Up Net is otherwise one of the most broken cards ever printed if they don't rotate it. Yeah, it's going to go out for sure. A big, big trivial, uh, big homage to Scoop Up Net, right? Because that is a... I love that card. card. (laughs) That card is very, very cool. I'm going to miss her or him or whatever they call it. And whatever the, the non-binary day, scoop up net is, yeah, whatever it's <laughs> the non-binary name for scoop up net is the the item that it is. But like the main point I had is just like we're at the end of the format. Mm-hmm. The card pool is so diverse, and there's so many cards you can play. So that means the ability to counterplay around these strategies is as easy as it's going to be mm-hmm. at the end of the format, right? Like you've got cards like Pumpkin Boo that are still here, and that's still going to exist next format. Mm-hmm. But even things like quick ball, right? There's four more outs to getting through a stadium. Like you have to literally look at it as like on a basic level as possible. Mm-hmm. It's not a lot you can do to stop Lugia. That's the thing. So I think either for NA meta, they've got to kind of understand like, hey, we're just going to play Lugia and tech out for the mirror. And it's just going to kind of become what Mewtwo EX was when Mewtwo EX was, <laughs> where like if you either play it or you don't play it and you lose to it, or you play it and you try to beat everybody else who's playing it. I, I feel like that's sort of what it's becoming. There are things that can stop it, and it'll be interested to see if people either discover it or figure out how to play around. But I mean, I could literally go on all day about like the amount of counterplay Lugia has. Like two two things that I saw yesterday in like decks that did well that were like ridiculously like absurd on paper, like on like in actuality, but on yeah. paper and like in gameplay, they were so broken. It was insane to watch. So I do have a couple questions to like follow up what you said. I think you gave a great summary. And one of the questions I was going to ask you off stream or like once we were done was, do I just play Lugia in Toronto? And I'm 90% sure I know the answer to that after you just said that. But uh, (laughs) you mentioned you can Oko everything. So as a normal Lugia turn two, V-Star, double powerful V-Guard energy, and then I assume you throw like a capture or something you don't want in the deck is that fourth energy, choice belt, and then just swing for 290 if my math is right. 50, yeah, 290. No. No? Most of the time, not. Because turn two, it depends. If you're going first, you're never doing that because you don't need to hit 290. Oh, you true. Have to really, you have to really evaluate all your special energies as, like, mm-hmm. pretty much resources in your deck. You only get a certain amount of them. And you're going to, on average, do a game discard about two to three uh, at minimum. I'd say anywhere on the high end of four to five as well because a lot of the times, like, 
cards like Air Balloon don't make as much sense to play down because they're pretty much dead on the first turn of the game. Mm -hmm. And you'd rather just play the one you'd rather just play the extra energy in your deck to just do the same thing as Air Balloon at that point, where you can just retreat and have an energy to attack with. So the main thing you've got to think about is like so like let, let's analyze Lugia Mirror for a second, right? It's it's pretty much a matchup where it comes down to do you hit everything you need to hit every turn? And can you take knockouts every turn at minimum? It's pretty much what it comes down to. So like the first sentiment you said, right, of if you are going, let's say you go first, right, mm -hmm. and your opponent starts to look you up, if you decide to go for that play where you're going to like put V-Guard on, you're going to put Powerfuls on your active and do that, pretty much what your opponent can do from that point is they invest their Powerfuls in, and it pretty much becomes, the best way I can describe it is like, imagine the Mew Mirror match when Fusion Mew is like a mirror match between players, Yeah, where the matchup became, you want to prize race your opponent, obviously, to get to, to zero prizes, but you also want to remove the fusion energies off the board mm -hmm. so that your opponent can't just go Melodious Echo 310, knock out your Mew Max twice, and swing the prize trade that way. Mm -hmm. It becomes the same way with Powerfuls. The way the math works, if you take out all the secondary Pokemon, is that three Powerful Energy and a Choice Belt knocks a Lugia out with a V-Guard. Putting aside any, any other things like Big Charm or Gardevoir or any other things. So, if you are strictly looking at two Lugias, theoretically, the first person to commit two powerful energy to their Lugia will get theirs knocked out in return and not have the ability to knock it out. So essentially what it will be, it will be a two for four prize trade because they'll take the first two, the opponent will then knock out take two, and then there's no Pokemon to knock out the Lugia. Mm -hmm. So the Lugia can just take a essentially free knockout. Or you're setting up a two shot and it returned to a one shot. So it becomes it goes from becoming favor to going two prizes ahead of your opponents mm -hmm. to then going to even and then your opponent now has the tempo to attack and take prizes into whatever. Um, Interesting. You to realize that uh, sooner than later is like resource. Uh, it is deceptively a pretty easy deck as long as you have like pretty basic sequencing. The deck is not extremely hard to play on the surface. Mm -hmm. Where it gets difficult though is a lot of the micro decisions you have to make, and you do have to route very heavily in advance depending on your matchup on on what secondary attackers you want to play. And that's really the, the joy of Lugia, in my opinion, and the reason that like I enjoy the deck as much as I do is because it's not just as, as brainless as you throw a V-Guard on your Lugia, and you double turbo, and you take the first knockout, and they knock you out back, and then you just sweep with your Lugia, and you go, or like you take four prizes with your second Lugia with Powerfuls. It can be that easy, and if it is, sure, I'll take the win, right? Like <laughs> I'm not going to complain about having an easier out, easier out to victory, but yeah. the secondary Pokemon like Charizard, Raikou, Amazing Rare, Uveltal, and even the Archaeops as well, weaving that into attack. Because it's got 120 on a one-prize Pokemon that it does act as a threat too, because it's very enticing for your opponent to take a knockout on it. They remove some energies off the board. They remove essentially your turbo engine to get energies into play. But it's a one-prize Pokemon. And a lot of times a Lugia player is initiating the trade favorably into their in their position by taking knockouts turn one or turn two. And uh, sometimes it's just you can literally go a game with this deck where you use one Lugia early and then four one-prize Pokemon and just win the game that way. It's, it's a very interesting way that I think people maybe need to relook at the deck instead of like, okay, we're going to use two Lugias and then use Charizard to close the game out or use mm -hmm. the Eveltal to close the game out. It can be like that a lot, and sometimes it is that way. But especially in the mirror match, like utilizing one-prize Pokemon is like a big deal that you've got to really think about. Interesting. So one more Lugia question. Would you say that the mirror match is skillful enough that I should feel confident taking it to a regional and be like, I'm going to outplay everyone? Not everyone, right? Because like, there's good players, but like, outplay the people that I should be beating in order to make day two? Or is it a little more of a coin flip than that with some decision making? Uh, if I had to order the three things from most importance to least importance from like outplay, coin flip, and then building your deck for the mirror and for teching, mm -hmm. uh, it probably goes coin flip is the most important. <laughs> oh no! Uh, it, it, <laughs> it. Uh, so coin flip is the most important because just statistically in that matchup, if both players are trying to do the same thing of trading with one prizers, use two prize Pokemon, uh, winning the coin flip is like a really big advantage mm -hmm. because it means that you pretty much give yourself like a lot of win conditions. So for example, going first. Your opponent doesn't get two Lugia V down in their first turn of the game. Like your deck plays on average four ways to gust and a way to search that gust out. Like you, a lot of the time, just can win the game that way, right? Mm -hmm. Additionally, uh, if you just go in with a two prize Pokemon as well, it's important as well. I think that's definitely like the biggest thing because putting everything else aside, like it's not as important. 
I think the number two and three between like teching for the list is probably more important because if you don't play teched out list, you're going to get beat by mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory, but I think the one thing that you, you should definitely still prep for mirror because I think people don't understand like how complex it can be if both players are smart. It's one of these matches where like if both people like know what they're doing and they both have like practiced it and have like extreme game plans into it then it actually becomes like super super skillful because it becomes very similar to like some matchups where the first person take a two prize knockout wins but at the same time not really because mm-hmm. it also depends on like how you manage your resource and how you manage your energy like i mean like there's like so many theoreticals you can go into about that and that's like something definitely for another date but yeah. it definitely comes down to like okay do you start your two i think if you go first and your opponent passes turn one with like a Lugia being active, like you should never lose that match. Like you, there's no way that you ever lose as long as like you have a functioning brain and you understand like, <laughs> okay, I don't need to put like more two prize Pokemon into play. I'm just going to like attack with my one prizers and I have access to Raikou as well. And I could still like Vigar or Lugia and like keep that in play. Like it shouldn't be a problem, but like it gets complicated. Like if you start a one prize Pokemon or your opponent does, cause like, okay, do I really want to like invest these resources to like, take a knockout with my Lugia, because then my opponent's just going to bring their Lugia back up, and then all of a sudden, like, I'm on the track where I have to go 1-2-1-2-2-1 or whatever, or 1-2-1-1 to win the game, my opponent can just take the 2-2-2 route. Mm -hmm. At least attempt 2 with Boss and Serena. So, it definitely gets complicated there. But, like, don't disrespect, like, teching for Mirror. Like, if you're not playing, like, least Dunsparce or Manaphy or Raikou in your deck, like you are not you are not going to go far. Like playing playing mirror. Like you need to play at least one of those cards. If not, like some people are playing all three. It's like I res- I respect the grind set to like not <laughs> lose to mirror. Like it's definitely a vibe for sure. But mm-hmm. be be prepared for mirror. But I, I wouldn't like it's not like a matchup where like I would like tell people like shy away from playing a deck because you're scared of mirror. Like you can definitely put the time in and get rewarded for it. And the deck is fun. Like you're going to enjoy playing Lugia because it's so broken to just <laughs> use a star power and flip over counter and then put two stage two Pokemon in your play. It's just like double the fun of playing Archie's Blastoise in my opinion. So. That, was a, that was a pretty good summary of Lugia for everyone who is currently doubting it because it still feels like there's more people than there should be. Uh, and they always doubts this stuff, man. They never know what's good until it comes out. Same story. That's uh, something else I wanted to talk about real quick to kind of jump into it. We'll get into the questions from Twitter, but now that you've played, you've played on both sides. Does, let's say North America, but that includes Europe and LATAM and, you know, do the non-Japanese regions need to pay more attention to Japanese tournament results? Because you're a month plus ahead of us. Do you think that it's like, more valuable than we're putting stock into right now or do you think it's like the kind of like oh we should look at this but oh maybe lugia is not that good because they're all just like on a hive mind right now like where where do you think this kind of lies in between those two i think it's in the middle because Mm -hmm. it's very situational like what events you are preparing for um so japan is always playing best of one i don't know if, if people maybe understand that at home but even like in top cut, right? So, for example, for the City League I went to, it was top 16 cut, and it was, like, best of 125 minutes still for every match in top cut. No best of three. Not even finals is best of three. Wow. The, literally, even at Champions Leagues, best of finals is literally best of one. Like, that is, you literally don't play best of one. You break in finals, oh, well, you lose. That, that's just that's how the game works, right? Mm-hmm. So lists are built very differently because they're best of one. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem with Japan is that can either be one of two ways. The smart way, in my opinion, is playing more consistency in your deck. Yeah. Because bricking in a top cut match is a horrible feeling. And if you've ever double bricked in a cut at like a league cup, or if you've made cut of the regionals, if you've double bricked and cut of the regionals, it is a terrible feeling. It is like the worst way to lose. Mm-hmm. Second way to build it is to build extremely high roll, extreme like happy-go-lucky decks that just when they draw everything, they win. That's also a viable strategy at a point. Mm-hmm. Also kind of touches on the thing of like playing super super like surprisey lists that play like stuff that maybe your opponent isn't prepared for and can't counterplay in a game two or a game three like they could in the states so honestly the best thing i would say to like viewers at home and like people who are trying to see like i want to have like a good place to start with lugia like i'm going to tell you that like 
people in Japan, like, they're not stupid. Like, they, they think through the same way that you. They have the same brain as you. They're going to think through, hey, this card is good, or I know I can play Aurora Energy. I'm going to play Yveltal on my deck so I have access to, to take knockouts on things. But you should also understand that the lists are tailored to be different. And at the end of the day, if things are winning over here, they're probably going to still find a way to win over in, in America or wherever they are else in the world. The percentage is going to be different because, again, the deck population is going to change and vary, and... Pokemon is a very, at least in the last three years, has been a very matchup polarizing game where some decks are just favored into other matchups and some aren't. And there's not this like these decks that go in and 50 50 each other and it's like a super high skill based. Uh, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but we're not in a skill based era of the format. We haven't really been in a super skill based era in the last five years, I would say. But that's, that's part of Pokemon, right? It is a card game. There's a lot of luck involved right now. It is what it is. But you still got to respect that if decks are doing well, they're they're going to do well wherever. And the card pool is going to be here soon, so you, you're either going to be prepared for it, or <laughs> you're going to still think that Palkia is good and play No Temple in your deck and, and get ran over by Lugia every round and go to and complain on Twitter. <laughs> you beat a smart person here. Be the, be the smart man. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I think a lot of people need to hear that one, too. Even me, too. Me, 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 even me, to an extent, right? I'll um, remind you here and there. I'll, I'll do my best. I appreciate that. Uh, so let's jump into some questions from Twitter, which are going to lead into the questions I'd wanted to ask anyway. And these are literally the questions the viewers wanted. Mm -hmm. So one of them is from Trainer Hill. You've been to both Japanese tournaments and others around the world. So what are some major differences that you see between a North American tournament and a Japanese tournament? Besides the I best of one, I guess. So I mean, this I'll, I'll give an atmosphere thing too because I, I think it's really interesting that like a lot of like Japanese culture as well is, is very private. So like mm -hmm. taking pictures at events, a lot of these things are like not really acceptable. But like I'll, I'll kind of go through my experience at City League. So like you'll go and you'll sit down for your round. It's very different from like at least a regional for like a pretty much a CP event where they the one thing that I I dislike so much about regionals, especially after playing in Japan, is even at a Champions League, where there's 3,000 people competing, they don't start the round until everybody is legitimately set up and ready to draw their card at the start of the turn. That's they impressive. Until everybody is ready to draw a card at the start of their turn and then start the rounds. Same thing at City Leagues. So, you're playing 25 minutes, which I do dislike. It's a little bit slow. Mm -hmm. I don't imagine how they played 25 minutes, like, four years ago, when the format was <laughs> a little bit longer than it is now, to say the least. Mm -hmm. But that's... A whole different discussion, but it's 25 minutes, best of one. Uh, and even after, like, in the store tournament, like, it's pretty normal. Like, you finish your game, you get up, you go walk out, you get a snack, you do whatever. Literally, like, you sit at your seat for the full 25 minutes that, that the tournament happens. Like, your round finishes, you sit there and you wait. And the next round goes, and you immediately move, and you go to your next seat. And that's sort of the, the very streamlined process that, like, our tournaments out here. Mm -hmm. um, and in general, like, the one thing that I, that I do think is like pretty funny about tournaments out here and players is uh, for those unaware, like they don't play for any money. And even prizes are like borderline minimum. They paid 500 yen to enter a tournament and went net negative for top eighting. Like <laughs> they literally did not pay out top eight or top four. I don't even think the winner got paid anything out besides championship points. Like wow. legitimately, like you literally go like borderline negative. Like even if you go like 6 0 at like tournaments and stuff like that, like. You make what fourteen hundred yen profit, which right now is like maybe ten dollars for going six zero and best of one against like the some of the like the top players in Tokyo. Like it, it does not matter. Like, but even with that like crowd of people, where it's like very different from the crowd, I think of the rest of the world. Where some people like legitimately play because they want to win money. Mm -hmm. They can they can settle with taking a Saturday off or taking a day off of work to go travel to a regional championship to win money. People here. They'll do it for zero money. Champions League, a 3,000-person event. The winner gets nothing but a plaque. Booster boxes, no money, no none of that. You get wow. a plaque. That's it. And you and compare that. Of course, you get that. the invite to World Championships, which is a nice feat as well. Don't get me wrong. I think getting a World Championship invite is something that probably people would give up for $500. They'd say, I'll take an invite. <laughs> or even $1,000, $2,000, they'd surely take an invite. For sure. 
But that's yeah. so surprising so, like, to hear after like the discourse yeah, of yeah. we need to be paid out to top 64 or even everyone who makes day two, which is 130, 40 players in North America versus you win a tournament that is three times as large as a North American tournament. You're like, I'm happy, right? Like I earn no money. And so it's like, it's such a different culture. Like the idea of like, this is fine. This is, this is good, right? Like it just sounds like there's no complaining about the lack of financial support there. Yeah, they don't even bat an eye. Like, they are just, like, overwhelmed with happiness and joy. And that's, like, sort of the last point of, like, the players, like, the the sort of the player base that draws in, I think, is, like, overall net positive for the game there because you're drawing in people who just genuinely enjoy the game. They get to their table. They get to their seat. They just want to play Pokemon. They want to have fun. They want to go through the full emotion, emotional roller coaster that is a match of winning, losing, being ahead, getting into cut, winning these, like, exciting matches and all of that. Where, like, I'll be honest, I've had, like, pretty much, like, besides, like, some, 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 like, small technical things that I've played against people, and, like, when it comes to, rather, when it just comes to, like, the mood of my opponent and the atmosphere when we're playing a game, it has been ten times better, on average, playing in Japan than it is North America. I have played against some of the most disrespectful opponents uh, at, at regionals who have just been stuck up and upset, and, and obviously people are going through their own stuff, right, so you have to still give credit to people who are still struggling, but... Just on average, just factually looking at it for what it is, people have been more pleasant to play against in this country than so far my experiences. I don't have much experience with it outside of playing one player at Worlds who was from Japan in 2019, but it was one of the best experiences because like we sat down, right? And they they're like it's like I offer you a rare candy. And there was just like a little hard candy that was wrapped up oh, and it looked okay. like and it was like this is so sweet. And then after the I I won the game, right? And they thank you for the game. And I was like, I've never normally you would sign the match slip and be like skill based game and walk off and like you know what I mean like that usual North American thing I was like this is I like I need to be more like this right like it was so it's good to hear that that seems to be the norm and not just the one person I played against yeah like I literally like even after like a tough day at school or like stuff happening in your life right like you can still go to an event or go to a tournament and things could be just like pretty rough in your life and you're just like i just want to like put my head down and play cards and not whatever but like the the atmosphere is sort of like so infectiously positive that you just end up going and then you're like you know what like things aren't so bad like i've got pokemon in my life right like i should be happy and grateful for what i have that's a good there there's a lot to learn from that and there's a lot that i'm gonna digest both now and also when going back to listen to this episode again to like edit and stuff is there's there's a lot to get from that for sure it's great man uh, I definitely suggest that anybody who is planning a trip to come out to Japan do around Worlds time, even if you're not in. If you get the opportunity to, like, outside of a Worlds venue, or if you, because that'll be a whole other thing with spectator passes, but, like, if you even get the chance to, like, go to the venue and, and play with people or play against your first opponent from Japan, because a lot of people haven't had that experience. The only really experience we get is if you've qualified for a World Championships. Mm -hmm. And that opportunity, like, please do it. Like, push yourself out of your comfort zone. They're not going to come up to you and play because they're very shy, but sure that they'll be more than happy to play against you and it's gonna be a great experience gonna teach you a lot about about what pokemon should look like and what sportsmanship looks like because they are some of the most sportsmanlike people i've played against out of like many playthroughs yeah and there's there's also a lot of salty north american regional stories that i'm sure we could both tell <laughs> Yeah, and this, the, the same thing exists on the other. Uh, the same thing exists on the other end too, right? Like I've seen people who get salty after. after I mean, for sure. In Japan, but it's just on average, statistically, a lot less from what I've seen and what, than what I've seen in America. The next question we got kind of the same question from two different players. So one from Logan Adams, aka Stellar Wish Gaming, and from Galizzi TCG, and they're asking about the lottery system in general. So mm. how that works, and then specifically also, does a player like a Shintaro or Yoneda or, you know, these like top players who have qualified for Worlds, do they enter the same lottery or does TPC potentially like, I don't want to say rig it for them, but be like, we're going to invite you because you are a big person who people want at the tournament. So how does the lottery system work and do any players get preferential treatment or is it equal for everyone? So start to finish, here's how the lottery works. Uh, events date will be announced pretty early on, similar to like when regionals are. So we know the, the dates of every single Champions League coming up uh, mm -hmm. until the end of the year in April. Uh, and Spring Shout will work is about three weeks before the event itself. 
maybe two weeks before the event itself, some, somewhere around like three or two weeks before, uh, a lottery page will be posted up on the Pokemon, essentially Pokemon website for Pokemon cards. Uh, it's free to apply for the lottery, and you can only have one account to apply. If they catch you double accounting, which is theoretically possible, but if they catch you double accounting, like both your accounts will get banned, and it has happened before. So you can't double account. It's not worth it. You know, person, you know, person, and, and and use one account. Anyways, uh, how it will work is lottery period will be open for about a week on average. Let's be nice and say they will end two weeks before. Mm-hmm. It will end on a day you can no longer apply for the lottery. Uh, things to note about how the lottery system works: people are drawn at random, except the following. Mm-hmm. Allegedly, I think it's been confirmed. Allegedly, there is something called essentially like an increased luck system is like the best way I could like sort of explain it. Where let's say you apply for a Champions League and you don't get into lottery. Mm-hmm. The next time you apply for a Champions League, you will have an increased chance to get into that tournament compared to when you applied before. And that will keep scaling up and up and up and up until you get into one. And to get into one, it will reset back down to ground level. So that means is if, if you miss four, your chances of getting to that next CL will be pretty high, but then after, your chances of getting into two back-to-back, it's not impossible, but it's very unlikely compared to people who have been waiting essentially a year to get in. Mm-hmm. On average, people get into about one a year, except for some odd circumstances, people with really bad luck, who some people have literally applied for every single event for the last four years and have not gotten into a single one, which I think is actually ridiculous. That It's real, yeah, it's, it's real which I think is actually ridiculous, and I don't know how I would continue playing this game <laughs> if I could not go to an event for four years straight. But yeah, I agree. <laughs> touch on that second point, there are people who don't have to go into a lottery. There are people who, ex- who accept that. So it's not what you think. People aren't invited. So like the Shintaro and Takuya and Yama- Yoshiyuki Yamaguchi, like mm-hmm. those people like aren't invited. However, you will see them at Champions Leagues a lot because the system that works is you can get invited based off of your placing at the last official event. So, for example, if you day two an event, which is 7-2 currently in day one, you pr- I, I have to double check. It's I'm, I'm 100% certain top 32 is guaranteed you get back, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty sure anybody who day twos uh, is put into that system somewhere along the lines where you pretty much... I, I'm going to just say top 32 to be safe for now. Uh, but if you top 32, you pretty much say that for the next event, you don't have to do lottery. You get what is called priority registration or priority entry. Uh, they just say priority in whatever the next event is, is how they refer to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of times, the same players will get it over and over again. If you perform well at every Champions League you go to, you could literally go to two Champions League straight and just not have to do lottery. So it works out well. Which makes sense. It's kind of like the top. That's like the stipend chasing here. And it's that same idea of like, well you get the money to go to the next event and then mm-hmm. you can if you're good enough you can keep riding that so it's that same idea just a little different right yeah it's very similar to what it was years ago where if you performed well at state championships or regional championships you would get buys in the first rounds of mm. nationals and certain regionals as well i know definitely for nationals there were buys a while ago if you placed well in specific events so it's sort of similar to that the buys are just getting into the event <laughs> in this case for japan so for the unaware, which is me and probably a lot of the listeners, what exactly is a Champions League? Is this like a regional equivalent? Is it an IC equivalent? How many of them are there? Like, what is the actual price? You win, you get a world's invite. But what else is there beyond that? Like, So Crash Course on Champions Leagues. Try to do this quickly as possible. <laughs> Pretty much like I used to refer to them as regionals, but... At this point, they're just ICs. Mm-hmm. They can range usually around 1,500 to 3,000 people. I mean, this most recent one in Yokohama was 3,000 masters, uh, which is a lot. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> yes. Big event spaces. <laughs> if you thought you've seen a big event hall for NAIC, it's like pretty much that size, but a little bit bigger, definitely. Um, and pretty much uh, it's best of one. You play day one and day two for this one, at least. And how it'll work is. You play the Swiss rounds out, uh, and at least for this last one, for for my knowledge, you play day one, nine rounds, and then if you're 7-2 or better, you go to day two, you keep your record, but you can change your deck going into the second day. Mm -hmm. So there is sort of that extra layer of complexity when it comes to 
playing a deck, do you play something safe on day one to try to get a, a good record and then pull out the deck so people aren't ready to tech for you going into day two? Hmm. Uh, and then from there, uh, you play an additional five rounds, I believe, maybe six rounds. You have to literally go X2 to make cut. It's top 16 cut. You have to go yeah. X2 to make cut. You then go to top 16 cut, which is still best of one, 25 minutes. And you play from there. You play your top 16 match. And then you play your top 8 match. And the top 8 match is actually the biggest match of the tournament. It sounds weird, but it's because top 4 gets day 1 invites to World Championships. And here's the part that's confusing to a lot of people. It doesn't matter if you're 1st place in the event or you're 4th place in the event. Get a day 1 invite. It does not matter. It is no difference if you finish 4th place to 1st place. The only thing that's different hmm. is the prestige of winning a Champions League and the plaque that you get is a different color. That's That's all it is. Which you can't put down the prestige. So of... top no, winning. yeah, that's, that's why players like like Daichi Shimada are like so heavily like sort of worshipped in this country in a sense of like people respecting them because winning two CL is I don't think it's actually been done by anyone besides him. It's it's just that difficult of winning two of these events, missed of one, and essentially going X two when X is usually fifteen. You usually have to go fifteen and two to win these events, which is borderline ridiculous that's so uh, that's, that's like so hard just like because like oh i've gone a 15 win streak on ladder or something like that sure or like oh in one of the late nights you've done it but there's like it's a it's a different thing happening here for sure and then prizes extend to first to fourth we'll get a plaque and the world's invite <laughs> you get uh you get priority for top eight and priority on all the way to 32, but you don't get anything for top eight. No playmat, no nothing like that. So mm-hmm. next time you top 16 and you walk away with $500 at regional, then I see you complaining on Twitter. <laughs> Remember, there's, there's people who get top eight at 3,000 player events in best of one, and they don't get anything. It's getting to play in another event. They they get to pay to go out to another <laughs> event where they, again, compete for $0 prizing. So let's think about that next time. So how... We're supposed to be doing Twitter questions, but I've changed my mind. This is the day one invite. How do you earn a day two invite? So I'm glad you asked that because it is pretty difficult to get a day two invitation. Uh, I have a double check on city leagues. Um, I actually don't think city leagues give. Uh, I think they might actually. I think city leagues like the way the city leagues works. I know that the, the top 64 players get invites. Mm-hmm. I think like the top 16 out of the city leagues get day two invites. I have to double check that. What I am certain about is top 16 at Nationals gets invites to day two. That's how that works. Okay. So, again, it doesn't matter if you win Nationals or you get top 16. Get day two invites. It's the same thing. No, no money either. Is Nationals the same lottery system? And then can you get an auto invite to Nationals based off of other things? Yeah, so Nationals works in the way that... Uh, I think the same way with Priority, I'm pretty sure. But then there's additional priority. It's lottery, but there's additional priority that at city leagues, the top 64 people get invites to worlds. But then if you're in the top 200 at the end of the season, you get essentially to, to bypass the lottery to nationals. Okay, so that's very hard. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, I'll put it in perspective. I got top eight at a city league, and that was 25 points versus 100 for reference. Uh, and I think. Right now, last I checked, there's still another three weeks left to City Leagues, and I think I was ranked like 1700th <laughs> in the country right now for 25 points. Oh my gosh! So, I mean, to to get to get the top the 200, you need to cut every single City League you go to, and then you usually need to win at least one to two to to be like guaranteed the top 200, and then you usually need to win two, and then like top. So like I think if you like top eight and then you win two and you get like top four to another one, like I think you maybe can bubble into like top sixty four because the problem is again like best of one in consistency. So every it just depends that season on how many players are consistent at winning multiple. Mm-hmm. Like if there's like a hundred people who win two city leagues, then it becomes just a bloodbath of like what does those third and fourth like tournaments essentially look like in there, pretty much. And then city league, judging off of your tweet. Is also a lottery system in some of the larger cities? Or is it literally every city league is large enough for a lottery system to get into those? 
So it changed this year. It used to not be a lottery last year, uh, the years before. You would just pick a place to apply to. Mm-hmm. Like when, when essentially it would like drop at a specific time and then you would just register. And if it booked, it booked. And that's how it so it was like a whole meta Gross. that like, if you wanted to finesse if you wanted to finesse your invite back then, essentially what you would do is you would pick a place in like the middle of nowhere in Japan, like all the way south, like Hiroshima or like somewhere like super south, uh, like Osaka even, or like I'm saying like far, far, like you have to take like a flight to get to this place. Mm-hmm. And then you would like go to these like 32 men in the middle of nowhere because the player base would be very easy there. It would just be a bunch of locals who don't know what they're doing out there and you would just finesse. And if you really want to get an invite, you essentially treat that as like a regional. So you'd pay your flight, you'd pay your hotel, you'd go out and you'd compete in essentially what is like a glorified league cup pretty mm-hmm. much to get your invite. That's what these are. They're just glorified league cups. You put in like regional prep for league cup is essentially like what you're doing. But now this year, it changed the lottery. So it's a whole game, essentially, is what it became. Because you want to apply to as many places that you could possibly go to that you're available and you're free for. But at the same time, the way lottery works is if you get you get into one of them, if you even can, and that's the one you get. So the way it works is the system will take every single event you, you put in lottery-wise, and it will run it down a program, mm-hmm. to my knowledge, at least how I've seen it work. And it will either say you get in, you get in, like you don't get in, you don't get in, you don't get in. It will keep going down. And then by date, I believe is how it's organized. So it will go down by date. And then eventually it will put you into one. So you want to apply to as many of the smaller ones as possible because they range from 32 people to 100 people. If you want to get into the 32 people ones because they're the easiest to finesse, but then it also depends on the size because when you go up to certain player thresholds, the player amount changes, and the round number changes, and the top cut number changes. So, for example, 32 mans are really good, but 60 mans are really bad compared to something like a 72 man, because 60 man is usually five rounds top eight cut with 60 people, mm-hmm. which is really, really sketchy. If you've ever been to a 60-person league cup where it's six rounds and people still bubble at 4-1-1, it's, again, there's no IDs, but it's different. Mm-hmm. Um, compared to an event that has 65 players or more, it's it's uh, five rounds top 16 cuts. Or actually, that's a whole other point because it's actually not a set number of Swiss rounds. You play in city leagues until there's only one undefeated person. That's how the system works. So you keep playing because there's no IDs until one person is left with undefeated record and then they cut. And that's how it works. And then they'll play cut. That's interesting. I guess... In theory, it's always going to be the same five o six o, but that's just because like double game losses exist, right? If you don't finish in twenty five minutes, so I guess it can technically get weird at certain points, as opposed to just like we're playing six rounds because six rounds. Yeah, I mean, I got really lucky in my event. I opened three o and then lost two to Lugia Mirrors, two to circumstances outside of my control. Got the coin and flip, like you mentioned, <laughs> is a I thing. Thought I was just, I thought I was just out of cut at that point, but the way it worked is. There were three. Um, there were three people at, uh, or there were two people. Yeah, there were three people at uh, XO, and the person who got down paired or got down paired, he lost. Mm-hmm. And then the two five O's played, and only one of them won. So then it was just left that way. And because my resistance was good, because I, I lost two people in cut, I ended up just getting into bubbling. So we but. take those. <laughs> Listen, a wise man once said we take things. Absolutely. <laughs> Stand by that my entire life. Plan. To go off of that, is there anything else about Karma Kitty asks about the best of one versus best of three? And then kind of the idea of IDs versus the double game losses. Is I think it most of what I touched on? In, oh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, like, does it change the mentality of anything? Are you. There's no IDs and no ties. Like, does it feel better? Does it feel worse? Does it feel like people are more likely to want to finish, or does it not change the pace of play at all? Um, I really thought as much about like the ID situation. Like, it's I haven't been like going to tournaments to be like, man, I wish I had an ID at this point. Like, I've kind of just been like, okay, let's play. It makes things easier. Mm-hmm. I have to do less math in my head. So overall, like, just a general win-win and the way I see it. Just play more Pokemon. Nobody can do it. It's just, just play Pokemon and be better. Like, if you're winning, <laughs> you're just better than your opponent, right? Don't, no ID games or down pairs and all this fun stuff. Just win, right? 
Um, <laughs> most of the best of one, best of three stuff I already talked about in the pod uh, when it comes to deck building. Um, so I won't retouch on that again. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I guess like mentality and like comparing like IDs to to double game losses with pace. People just want to play. They just want to play faster. They don't want to slow play. They don't want to do any of this stuff. Because, I mean, there are, like, very... The, the only instance is, like, people on teams at Champions Leagues will purposely... Like, nobody scoops in this country. Because nice. there are times where, like, uh, playing to a double game loss is beneficial if you have, like, a teammate who's trying to win or do stuff like that. So at Champions Leagues, like, you will see people, like, purposely, like, taking stall plays or playing slower and, like, doing stuff. So that's, like, the only instance where, like... Uh, double game losses are grimy because the whole point of double game loss is not to just say that IDs are stupid, which I mean you could look at it that way, but I don't I don't think that's what they're doing. I think they're literally mm-hmm. doing it because they want people to play the game and they want the people to finish games. And they want them to play. That's like the only reason. Is they just avoid the whole slow play fiasco that is like the rest of the world. And it's worked. So it's worked. Lighter Iverson asks about the Japanese online community. So like if you look at the you know, NA Europe, etc. We're on Twitter. You have the big YouTube and Twitch streamers and stuff like that. We're mostly unaware outside of like, I think we all follow what Pokey CA book that gives us the champion league results and everyone should follow Yoshi and everyone follow Shintaro. Right. But like, is the, is the Twitter scene the same? Are there big streamers that you're looking at constantly on YouTube and Twitch or how does that all work out? Uh, PCGO is not that big because it's not an officially endorsed client in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you pretty much have to like VPN and download it pretty much to to get on and play at that point. Um, so in retrospect, PCGO content is very limited. It will only be sometimes showcased by some of the Pokemon creators. Uh, most of the creators uh, either form two sorts of style of content. Um, first style is sort of just discussion combined with a second style. So like the for example, like people like Daichi and Shintaro will just do videos where they talk about new cards or talk about things that are coming out in combos and stuff like that. I think Daichi has more of an emphasis on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the second, which is more popular when it comes to like actual TCG playing, is tabletop gameplay is very, very popular for YouTube channels. Like channels with about 50 to 100,000 subscribers that just do gameplay with the new decks that come out, just with an overhead camera, and they'll put graphics up on the screen and, and explain as they're playing a game. So it'd be equivalent to like, all right, I'm going to start the game. Good luck, good luck. I'm going to draw a card to start. I'm going to play Quick Ball. When I play Quick Ball, I discard a card from my hand and search for mm. next So essentially it would be like narrating an entire game through that. No mm. like commentary stuff like I would do, but it's just like literally explaining what every card does. It's very uh, informative to new audiences or people who aren't experienced. And that's also like uh, something that I just want to quickly touch on, which has been so weird, is like you'll come to a tournament and you'll see people there that like, you would just not expect to see the Pokemon. <laughs> it's just so different from America. Like you go and like, I mean, the, the percentage of like people who are just they're just there and they're in their their business suits from the day or whatever. But there's just like a, a ton of girls that just pull up and play Pokemon, which is just like I still like just don't process it. That's just like so weird to me because like I mean we just don't have like a at least from my knowledge in America there's just a huge scene of girls who show up and and playing these tournaments and. I mean, like, I'd love to see that change. I'd love to see more inclusivity and, and more things. So that's, again, like a discussion for a whole other day that we could have a whole episode on and go into whole details about. But, I mean, honestly, like, the, the diversity and the variety as well of, like, people from, like, different ages and ranges and sex and orientation and, and all that fun stuff who show up and play it's just been surprising and it's definitely been a nice fresh breath of air and very different from NA. so it's been it's been interesting to sort of see and observe you're making it sound like a lot of fun listen uh you've got an excuse to come out here now in yokohama so you should just uh you should come out and uh you should just get your invite and stop having to take your <laughs> uh with your kid now and just just come out and go to tournaments i know that's one is a journal right that's the killer i got two regionals to get my invite so uh two two i did it last no, we, year <laughs> so, we just went in i see bro that's literally what sosa said <laughs> i had to cancel vancouver and i tweeted out and he's like bro just win naic what's wrong with you it's like okay sorry sir <laughs> will do so i have to ask anything else or correction what else because i know you came into this with like 
these are some of the things that I've noticed. And I know you you got most of them in there, presumably. But what else do you think is like important for NA-based players to know about the difference between the Japanese tournaments, gameplay, anything else? You're the one who's experienced. I'm here to give you a platform to listen to the stuff we want to listen to. Sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll sort of just like reiterate a lot of what I said. Like, remember that best of one is is different in the sense of deck building mm-hmm. and why certain cards are being played than others. Uh, remember incentive and the psychology behind it. Why does somebody want to put in eight hours of their working day a week before to go play in an event? They're either super dedicated or they just don't care about using their time and they just want to play Pokemon for fun. It's usually one of the two. Think about that as well. Um, remember like the sort of mindset that comes with playing for free. And that they just are happy to be playing Pokemon. Uh, it just like the cultures are very different, and a lot of the times it's just people sort of follow the same path. Or they just they're either working their nine to five job or they're they're doing whatever. And Pokemon for them, I mean, it is here too as well. Just a, sort of a nice fresh breath of air for them to just sort of take the night off and come from their job and sort of find escape in Pokemon, which I think is something that anybody can take away. And I think at least a reason for me sometimes that I play the game right is just just to have that sort of after you go home and after you've either gone to school or you've been working all day or doing whatever, that you can just kind of go and play the game and have a good time. Um, but I, I think, like, the, the, with all that being said, like, it is the same game. Like, you're playing with the same... I mean, we get cards early here, right? So mm-hmm. there's that difference. But it's, like, the same game with the same cards and the same rules. Just take that for what it is. Like, it's just they're going to do well. Results aren't invalid. I think the player base is very different to the fact that I think the average player at a regional championship is a lot more skilled than the average player at, let's say, a Champions League. But I do passionately believe like the top 100 players in Japan would outclass the top 100 players in the U.S. And I assume that first part of the statement uh, is simply complicated number of players. At, like, yeah, I think that that's definitely like a big, big thing as well. I think like... Um, it gets complicated when you look at the entire world, but like, don't underestimate like Japan's top players. They are extremely good when looking at like countries or even the world's percentage of top players. They are very analytical. They understand what they're doing. But the reason you don't see them consistently getting results, like players are consistently getting results here, is because they can't consistently enter tournaments, and because best of one does not promote consistency. I dislike why making a name for yourself is very hard in this country when it comes to. You need to win a Champions League, get your invites, somehow create a Twitter file. I'm not going to make that. So, <laughs> but, like, it's hard. It's difficult. And it's the, you just like, there are players who people don't know about in this country that I've had the pleasure of meeting and playing against and seeing them play who are like on the same skill level as people like around the top 16, top 32 bubble in NA. Like, they exist and there is a plethora of those amount of players. Last question, most important question. Do you prefer the silver borders or the yellow borders? Um, <laughs> yeah, I ain't, I ain't gonna, I'm not gonna play it up, bro. Silver borders are better. 100%. Not bad. No, I, I was gonna say, I was, like, I, like a thing. I was like, I'm not playing it up. And some of the cards are just like, I saw like the Grove tablet or whatever it's called, like come out with the yellow borders. Like, like come on let's just let's just all have a fun time and play silver borders together yeah, honestly like let's just promote language here oh where is it oh, oh okay, it won't go in oh the stupid light yeah <laughs> it looks it, it just looks so bad jeez man honestly they should just like only print stuff in japanese and just promote people to just like learn the language it sounds like fun <laughs> like they put in like subtitles above the language just have like 20 languages in the card i'll make it there uh, I think I think they just look better on average. I think like the V Pokemon as well, like look sick. I think the promos look cool. I think like the Alcoils look cool. Uh, I'm happy to have Japanese cards for sure. They do warp like crazy in heat. I think I have like a picture of just like I left like cards in like a start deck like 100 thing, mm-hmm. and I got like one of the special ones where like they're like all reverse hollow and foil, and I was like, oh, they're like reverse Ultra Balls, and I was like. Oh, let me get that. And I kid you not, it was literally like a Pringle. Like it was like the full Pringle warp into it. I somehow reverted it by basically putting like a bunch of weight on it, but like uh, putting like the cardstock quality besides because I think like on average, like, I do like the stock quality better of the American cards, mm-hmm. rather just cards that are not Japanese. 
but like texture, detail, all that stuff, like I got to give the plus one up to Japan. Is it, I said last question, I lied. Um, no, you're good. Is it easier or harder to get cards? Because like, obviously the player base is larger, but also mm-hmm. I assume the collector's base is larger. So is it like, is it easier or harder to get cards in Japan than it was in NA? I'm happy you asked this because the economy is essentially flip-flopped from what it is in America. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you something that's about to blow your mind. (laughs) So in the hype of Palkia V star, Mm -hmm. these were 300 yen Mm -hmm. and V stars were 400 yen. I'm going to tell you an accurate representation of how much that costed. So literally for a V star, it cost $2 and 73 cents. And for a V it cost $2. Yeah. Bro, I spent more than that after the promo came out. I bought my Palkias like three weeks ago. That's seven months too late for Palkias, and I played more than that. And I'll also say something to blow your eyes. So, like, what upon release, right? Like, when everybody's getting ready for City League, stuff like that, Lugia Vs and V-Stars hovered at around $6 a piece on release week. Are you... With a deck that has 40% meta share. Yeah. I'm um, expecting to yes, play like 20 for the V's or whatever, let alone the V stars, like 50. How? how? So, Are pull rates because, better? Uh, it's because boxes are more mappable and hits are more guaranteed in boxes. So mm-hmm. the way it works is you get one secret rare, essentially, um, which is either a full art card, a gold card, or a hyper rare card. Mm-hmm. which is or an alt art card is like your one hit of the box and then you usually get on average like five to six v's in a box um so on average a in a box you're paying so like let's do the math right you're paying five you're paying five thousand yen so i usually just use the one to one you just move two zeros over it's like the best okay. way that i'd say to anybody who just wants to learn price so it's about fifty dollars us mm-hmm. before the economy went to where it is now um and on average if you're pulling a lugia like, I mean, if you priced it at $20, it wouldn't make any sense because you could pull a 1-1 line and you're making your money back in the box. And that's not including the secret rares that can go for upwards of, like, Jumon N or, I mean, that's, like, the really expensive ones. So that's probably around, like, you're getting to the high prices. I mean, Lukia right now is Jumon N, which is essentially 1000 US dollars is the, what the altar is going for right now. I think it's down a little bit. Um, <laughs> but it, it was hovering there at the release weekend. Down so, like, a little bit is still... A lot. It's maybe like it's maybe like seven thousand. Maybe it's like seventy thousand yen, or maybe it's like seven thousand yen right now. No, like seventy thousand. Yeah, so about seven hundred dollars. But oh my gosh! So when you see a fully blinged Japanese deck, that's like next level cost. Yeah, luckily they're smart here, and they like double sleeve their cards. Anytime I see a max ready deck like back with like plasma ultra balls and stuff like that that were double sleeved, that was like. Okay, man. You do you, bro. If you want to play with these cards, man, that's on you. But uh, the opposite is true, though. That trainers here are, are very expensive. Uh, so I miss the days of like buying my trainers on TCG Player for like twenty cents. Mm-hmm. You're usually paying on average about a hundred yen for each trainer. Interesting. So about a dollar per trainer. But some things are more expensive. Some cards just for no reason were expensive. So like Avery was like seven hundred yen. So about like five dollars or whatever for, for the avery. regular avery yeah like battle passes like before the spike i know they're now a little bit more in america but like at the time where they were maybe like 50 cents a piece in america were like 580 yen so about like three and a half dollars or whatever per piece so on average you're still spending about the same but mm-hmm. it's still better overall net because you just you know I, i'm of the opinion that like you don't need more than one play set of a card that you you need for like trainer cards like it's nice to have more research or more ultra balls to put in your decks like if you pull them out of extra packs and sure like play them but uh on average like if you were to like build every deck specifically and hold board decks and like yeah you're gonna pay more for trainers so you're still paying about 50 dollars per deck maybe 60 dollars per deck on average here i think uh in u.s dollars but like i mean Personally, I'll take that trade off. I'll take the trade off of paying like 300, 400. Like, Lugia will be down to like 500, 600, I think. Yeah. Like, for, yeah, each. Like, yeah, 50, 50 60 is significantly cheaper. Limitless has a thing now where they have the calculator based off the TCG prices and ignoring Lugia, the top tier decks that aren't Reggie Gigas are still $150, $200 total, which cheaper than Magic, correct. But when you're like, oh, yeah, you're going to spend like $50, that's like, 
Wow. <laughs> you get better looking cards and they're cheaper. I was going to say, like, they're better looking cards. <laughs> it's not even Probably fair. Well. Oh, gosh. They gotta, that's why you got to make the change. Living life out here in Japan. That's all you got to do. I, I hope, hopefully I'll make it for Worlds, at the very least. Even even if you don't qualify for some reason, right? Like everybody has priorities in life. You obviously have a big year for yourself, taking care of the kids. So you should still come out. I'll I'll show you around. I'll give you a little bit of a tour. Ooh, now we're talking. Maybe some incentive for your end. Ethan, if the people want more of you, where can they find you? Uh, follow me on Twitter at HagstraTCG. I'm kind of like an ex-content creator at this point. <laughs> so uh, if you want to check out like old vods, if you got time, uh, you just go to YouTube HagstraTCG on YouTube. And uh, yeah, make sure you stay tuned. Check out the broadcast for Pokemon. Uh, hopefully, see you guys back uh, be at the desk. Hopefully, soon in the events. And if you see me at a regional, just come say hi. Happy to talk to you guys. And uh, thanks for all the support over the last year. And uh, thanks, Miller, for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, we've still got like so much to talk about. So this is not the last future. time. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Yes. There's still questions I have. There's questions I know the community has, and there's still experiences that you are going to have that. We're going to need to talk about for sure. So we'll have you back. If you want Ethan back, be sure to let me know. Drop a comment on YouTube, at me on Twitter, at Mellow underscore Magikarp. Thank you all for listening. This has been another episode of the Lake of Rage podcast. We'll catch you all next week.